at the end of our gathering together, we're going to do communion as a group. And so no matter where you're at, go ahead and grab uh, some bread or wine or juice that you have in your house. And at the end of our gathering time, we'll be doing the communion and a benediction time together. And if you have questions or responses to us, go ahead and on Facebook or YouTube, type them into the chat bar and we'll be watching those and try to respond to them as they come. And so I want to invite Kevin and Sharia in now. Morning. Kevin. Marius. Good morning, everybody. So we're going to end the video right now um, on our end, and then we're going to allow Adam to stream a Bible project video. So we're going to allow him to do that, and we'll be back in a handful of minutes. The book of Exodus. It's the second book of the Bible, and it picks up the storyline from the previous book, Genesis, which ended with Abraham's grandson, Jacob, leading his large family of 70 people down to Egypt. Now, Jacob's 11th son, Joseph, had been elevated to second in command over Egypt, and he had saved his whole family in a famine. And so Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, offered the family to come live there as a safe haven. And so eventually Jacob dies there in Egypt, and Joseph and all his brothers do too. About 400 years pass, and the story of the Exodus begins. Now, that name refers to the event that takes place in the first half of the book, Israel's Exodus from Egypt. But the book has a second half that takes place at the foot of Mount Sinai. In this video, we'll just focus on the first half, where centuries have passed, and the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied, and they filled the land. Now, this line is a deliberate echo back to the blessing that God gave all humanity back in the Garden of Eden. And it reminds us of the big biblical story so far. Humanity forfeited God's blessing through sin and rebellion, and so God chose Abraham's family as the vehicle through which he would restore his blessing to all the world. But the new Pharaoh does not view Israel as a blessing. He actually thinks this growing Israelite immigrant group is a threat to his power. And so just as in Genesis, humanity rebels against God's blessing, so here Pharaoh attempts to destroy the source of God's blessing, the Israelites. He brutally enslaves them in forced labor, and then he orders that all the Israelite boys be drowned in the Nile River. Now, Pharaoh, he is the worst character in the Bible so far. His kingdom epitomizes humanity's rebellion against God. Pharaoh has so redefined good and evil according to his own interests that even the murder of innocent children has become good to him. And so Egypt has become worse than Babylon from the book of Genesis. And so now Israel cries out for help against this new Babylon, and God responds. God first turns Pharaoh's evil upside down as an Israelite mother throws her boy into the Nile River, but in a basket. And so he floats safely right down into Pharaoh's own family. He's named Moses, and he grows up to eventually become the man that God will use to defeat Pharaoh's evil. In the famous story of the burning bush, God appears to Moses and commissions him to go to Pharaoh and order him to release the Israelites. And God says that he knows Pharaoh will resist, and so he will bring his judgment on Egypt in the form of plagues. Then God also says that he will harden Pharaoh's heart. And so we're introduced into the next main part of the story, the confrontation between God and Pharaoh. Now, what does this mean that God says he'll harden Pharaoh's heart? It's super important to read this section of the story really closely and in sequence. 
In Moses and Pharaoh's first encounter, we're told simply that Pharaoh's heart grew hard. There's no implication that God did anything. And so in response, God sends the first set of five plagues, each one confronting Pharaoh and one of his Egyptian gods. And each time, Moses offers a chance for Pharaoh to humble himself and to let the Israelites go. But after each plague, we're told that Pharaoh either hardened his heart or that his heart grew hard. He's doing this of his own will. And so eventually, it's with the second set of five plagues that we begin to hear how God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So the point of the story seems to be this. Even though God knew that Pharaoh would resist his will, God still offered him all of these chances to do the right thing. But eventually, Pharaoh's evil reaches a point of no return. I mean, even his own advisors think that he has lost his mind. And it's at that point that God takes over and bends Pharaoh's evil towards his own redemptive purposes. God lures Pharaoh into his own destruction as he saves his people, which is what happens next. With the final plague, it's the night of Passover, and God turns the tables on Pharaoh. Just as he killed the sons of the Israelites, so God will kill the firstborn in Egypt with a final plague. But unlike Pharaoh, God provides a means of escape through the blood of the lamb. And here the story stops and introduces us in detail to the annual Israelite ritual of Passover. On the night before Israel left Egypt, they sacrificed a young spotless lamb and painted its blood on the doorframe of their house. And when the divine plague came over Egypt, the houses covered with the blood of the lamb were passed over and the sun spared. And so every year since, the Israelites have reenacted that night to remember and to celebrate God's justice and his mercy. But Pharaoh, because of his pride and rebellion, he loses his own son, and he's compelled to finally let the Israelites go free. And so the Israelite slaves make their exodus from Egypt. But no sooner do they leave that Pharaoh changes his mind, and he gathers his army and chases after the Israelites for a final showdown. As the Israelites pass through the waters of the sea safely, Pharaoh charges towards his own destruction. The Exodus story concludes with the first song of praise in the Bible. It's called the Song of the Sea. And the final line declares that the Lord reigns as king. And then the song retells in poetry what the story of God's kingdom is all about. It's about how God is on a mission to confront evil in his world and to redeem those who are enslaved to evil. God is going to bring his people into the promised land where his divine presence will live among them. This story is what it looks like when God becomes king over his people. So after the Israelites sing their song, the story takes a sharp turn. The Israelites, they're trekking through the wilderness on their way to Mount Sinai, and they're hungry, they're thirsty, and they start criticizing Moses and God for even rescuing them. They say they long for the good old days in Egypt. I mean, it's crazy. So God graciously provides food and water for Israel in the wilderness, but these stories, they cast a dark shadow. And we begin to wonder, could it be that Israel's heart is just as hard as Pharaoh's? We shall see. But for now, that's the first half of the book of Exodus. My name is Kevin Bates, and I'm a pastor in Sherwood, Oregon. And each and every week, we desire to take theological principles, biblical stories, and narratives, and really all the genres of scripture, and help you immerse yourself in them, embody them, and apply them to your everyday life. I want to encourage you to tune into this online broadcast each and every week. And ways that you can support our ministry is first, follow our Instagram page, and then like our Facebook page. 
You can listen, of course, to this online broadcast each and every week, and we're always evolving our format. So this is a different format even from last week. So we're looking at different ways to teach and present and to give you all of this material. We're excited to always be growing in this technological world. You can financially support our ministry through our website, resonatelife.org under the Give tab. So we want to encourage you today to make comments underneath whatever social media platform you're using today, whether it be YouTube or Facebook, you can make comments and we're going to try to pick up those comments uh, through the time. And so be patient with us because it is delayed uh, what you what we're watching or uh, what we're doing versus what you're watching is a little bit delayed. And so we'll pick up those comments as we go along and Jake will be uh, Jake will be helping us through that. So I am joined today by Sherea Bodner. Sherea uh, leads our theology of our of our church. She oversees basically the theological principles that we teach and also hold to as resonate. And so we call her our canon and a canon is someone that does just such. And so she walks us through and helps us and, and really points us in directions, not necessarily telling us what to believe, but giving us guidance and asking good questions. And then Jacob Fluke, Pastor Jake is an associate um, at Resonate. And so he is on our preaching team and also um, handles a lot of different kinds of ministries uh, that an associate would like our building and Vine and Sparrow oversees that, uh, that project for us. And so we're so grateful that each one of you, uh, well, both of you have joined us and I'm grateful that each of our listeners have joined us as well. So we are starting actually the book of Exodus today. Last week, we did a little bit of background of Exodus and we talked about deconstruction and denial and the emotions of things and then construction. And so what's funny about today is I asked this team whether or not they felt prepared or nervous or excited about today. And they said, we feel a little more uncomfortable than last week. And there's a reason for that because last week we deconstructed. It's really easy sometimes to deconstruct. That's when we come in with you know, our opinions and our thoughts and our history backgrounds, and we take material or a book or, or whatever, and we're able to look at the holes in it. Uh, we're able to look at the missing pieces. We're able to look at the missing thoughts and ideas and memories, um, but it's a little more difficult to construct. That's why in deconstruction, when we deconstruct something, we sometimes live in deconstruction versus construction. And so I want to encourage us as a congregation that as you maybe deconstruct things in your life, the movement needs to be towards construction. We can't just live in deconstruction because that's not helpful for our faith. It's not helpful for our community. It's not helpful to promote the name of Jesus in deconstruction, but it's also, it's very helpful if you deconstruct and construct something very brand new and fresh, and that can be very life-giving. So a lot of you talked to me through the week about this subject matter that we brought to the table last week, 
how life-giving that was, how it shaped your, your week, how it was, um, it just, it just gave you a sense of renewal. It gave you a sense of, of goodness. And you gave us that feedback and you talked to us about that feedback. And I think before we begin today or move into the material today, I just want to clarify and help and support anyone that was a little freaked out about last week. Now, maybe you listened to the material and that was brand new. Maybe you um, engage in the conversation and you're like, wow, okay, I've never heard that before. Or maybe it just threatened some things inside of you. Maybe it threatened some old um, ideas or maybe some things that you've always known to be true all of a sudden then gets broken down. And, and so that can threaten maybe maybe the history of our lives can threaten, gosh, you know, my Sunday school teacher taught me this or uh, the pastor of my other church way back when taught me this. And so now we're learning this. I mean, what is what is going on? So I want to help those that maybe felt a little threatened or freaked out to you have a place in this conversation. I don't ever want you to feel like you're on the outside. I want you to feel included. So we're just going to take a couple minutes. I think Shreya is going to lead us out. Um, help us Shreya with and help help the people that maybe feel a little uncomfortable with what's what's going on here. This is kind of the process that we've been talking about uh, last week was the three boxes where we begin in order. And those are the ideas and structures we grew up with. And sometimes those structures break down. They no longer support us. We move into disorder um, and then hopefully find ourselves in reorder where we're able to build something up from what seems to have fallen apart. Um, I think disorder is a really great name for that second box um, because that's how it feels. It's confusing. Yeah, it's disorienting. Totally. We, we feel lost. Um, sometimes we feel like we've lost God. Um, and those are really valid feelings and part of the experience. Kevin shared this last week as well, um, which are um, some of the um, emotions we may experience while going through a deconstruction, um, beginning with denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and then finally acceptance. Um, these are stages of grief applied to deconstruction because deconstruction is losing something and there is grief involved and it's okay to mourn those losses. Um, well, I think that this, this five, these five emotions, I would call those let's just call them emotions for, for mm -hmm. practical purposes. So those five things, I think, fall in that camp of disorder. Yeah. That's what we're experiencing in disorder. And I really think it's really important to focus on Richard Rohr's th third box where, okay, we go through deconstruction or disorder and then we have to reorder. Is that what he calls it? Reordering? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So reordering is, I think, I think crucial. I'm, I'm going to wake up, you know, one day and I, I find out that, you know, the tooth fairy is not, you know, I mean, that's a really bad example to use in comparison to the Bible. But I mean, for simplicity's sake, you wake up and you go through disorder, you know, oh my goodness, you know, these characters that my parents taught me don't actually exist. And then we have to reorder something, um, 
in our lives, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think that verse that you brought up in our yeah. prelim meeting, yeah, is a good is a good landing pad for this. Yeah, uh, Philippians three sixteen says, "Only let us live up to what we have already attained." Um, and what I find encouraging there is that it doesn't say you have to fit into this box at this time. It just says live consistently. Um, own your story, live your story. Be in those questions when you have them. Be in the answers yeah. when you have them. Um, and also be a community who allows each other to be in different places at different times. Right. Right. And I think also not stop asking questions. Yeah. And to, mm-hmm. to always have the posture of learning throughout the, your whole life that if we stop learning, there's something, there's something wrong with us emotionally, even. There's, um, yeah. I think with Jesus, we see, we see death and resurrection. Um, and I find it encouraging to think that maybe our faith can look like the same thing when we lose things it might feel like a death. Um, but Jesus promises us resurrection. And so that resurrection could be even the resurrection of our thinking, the resurrection of our faith, the resurrection of our belief. Uh, I don't like the words belief system because our belief or our faith is not a system. (laughs) But I understand the language. And when it comes to the idea of systems, Those are structures or a list of order of things that fit within a tight little package. And we create systems in business or create systems in organizations to to bring order to disorder and to bring performance to lack of performance. We create systems uh, to bring profit to nonprofit, right? So we we, we create systems in order to move things to the direction and the agenda that we have set out to, to, to be or to do. Uh, that works really well in business. That works really well in organizations. That works really well in uh, profiteering. That works really well in enterprise. That works really well in, in empires works really well in government, right? That does not work well in faith at all. That that faith is more of a journey. Faith is more of an exploration. And the moment that we stop asking questions is a moment that a sense of like immaturity comes into play, I think, where we, we just kind of take things for face value because mom and dad told me so, or grandma, grandpa told me so. And a lot of things are good that grandma, grandpa, mom, and dad told me so. Yet, uh, when it comes to these important ideas of the Bible, I think stopping our questions, um, you know, can produce a immature faith, kind of a pew-sitting faith, that we just take everything as face value and not not really explore and own it ourselves. Well, we were also taught that it was wrong to ask questions or doubt from, from power. Mm -hmm. And so as we, right. 
what we are doing here is opening up the possibility for you all to to experience, express, ask questions, and doubt. And none of those things are the absence of faith or an absence of relationship with Jesus. That is just a development of where you are currently are at so that you understand more different things. And like we all can take a passage and read it differently from where we sit, from what position we hold, and also what information we bring into it. And that's okay. Yeah, and that idea of needing to hold on to something, that's what we've been terming that, is sometimes we need to hold on to something just to survive. And we need to believe in something just to survive. Call it a crutch, call it whatever you want to do. As long as that something is not abusing others, it might be abusive to you, and that's not healthy. I understand that. Yes, as long as it's not abusing other, you might need to hold on to something. You might need to hold on to a theological principle, a theological system. You know, when it comes to like Calvinism and Arminianism, that systematic theology idea in two big camps of Christianity. If you need to be a Calvinist to survive, I don't know why you would need to be an Arminianist or Calvinist to survive. But if you needed that to believe in some form of Jesus, then I think that just hold on to it for a while and you'll explore and, and figure it out um, eventually. And no one's like telling you that um, you have to let all these things go in order to be a Christian. I think that there's, there's uh, things connected to salvation. There's things not connected to salvation. And we need to be really clear about what is connected to salvation, what is not connected to salvation in scripture. Do you want to, well, most talk, people, do you want to talk about okay. what you teach as salvational or not? Well, last week we talked a little bit about that, that that which is connected to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, we would consider a non-negotiable idea, a non-negotiable topic. So faith in Christ is connected. We baptize by immersion. We, we take communion um, repentance, confession, uh, faithfulness, all those things are connected to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And so we don't sit there and say, well, you don't have to repent, that doesn't matter, or you don't have to confess, that doesn't matter, or you don't have to be baptized, that doesn't matter. So those we don't say that because those things are topics that are just non-negotiable. But then you have negotiable topics, and negotiable topics are things like we're talking about today, that if you believe in the historical accuracy of the book of Exodus, and I believe that it's historically plausible, yet it's more of a narrative, it's more of a story, and it doesn't line up with history as, as much as you want to believe it lines up with history, we still get to go to heaven, we still get to celebrate with Jesus at the table. So we need to be very clear about that. And those that hold to a historical accurate exodus, what we want is we want room at the table for everyone. So if I don't believe in the historical uh, exodus, then I need to open up the table to those that do believe in the historical exodus. This is not a salvational idea. It's not a non-negotiable idea. But one thing that I do want to bring up that's really important in this discussion is most people 
And most Christians over a long period of time have talked about the historical plausibility of Exodus and they forget something really important. And this is what is important is the story of Exodus is theologically plausible. And that's where we miss the boat is we spend so much time on history and making sure that history lines up, but, but we forgot about the theological plausibility that this is about God. This is about, this is about God's nature, God's redemption, God's um, uh, exploration and journey with these people. And so the book of Exodus is theologically plausible for all of us, that we all have an Exodus. We all have a redemption. We all have a a journey in the wilderness. We all have the the big ideas of Exodus happen inside of us. And they sometimes can happen multiple times in our lives and in our really our weeks and our days that, that it's very theologically plausible. So the story of Exodus, I believe the narrative of Exodus, and I believe the writers of Exodus definitely believe that the story was much more important than the history. That the story, because, because Hebrews were storytellers, that the Hebrew people believed the story and you and me getting the story was much more important than the history. And that's the jump that we all need to make is this what's being said and what's being taught and the lessons that are, that are within the book of Exodus that, that we spend so much time on the history that we lose the theological plausibility. We just think, well, this is, this is a piece of history that happened, yet we lost the narrative. Do you guys have anything to, to add to that? Because I think that's an important idea. <laughs> yes. Uh, okay. We talked last week about the, the life of, I think, the life of pie conversation that the point is and the purpose is greater than the story itself. And so when we look at a narrative or, or any type of writing that is in this narrative format, we don't, we don't necessarily see the, the accuracy or the historicalness is the point. We see what is trying to be said here as most important. And then when we start to put like Western ideas of historical nature onto, onto old, old texts, we get into a lot of trouble. Right. Yes. And we do see through our, through our filter of Western or modern thinking, you know, we think through um, our daily car driving, going to work, sitting in glass and cement buildings, um, living in wood structured homes, carpeted floors and, and food being served, you know, 32 inches above or whatever a table is, 26 inches above the ground. We all eat above the ground and we all live, you know, two and a half feet above the ground at all times. And we move from 72 degrees to 72 degrees to 72 degrees in our, in our context. We never get cold. We never get hungry. We never feel, well, we might feel oppressed, but we never uh, live 
it seems, in our Western modern middle class mentality, we a lot of times see scripture through that lens. And we need to be very careful because seeing through the eyes of the ancients shows a great respect for scripture. And when we think through the eyes of the modern, that's when we run into trouble. and We actually have a really low view of scripture at that point. That when we see through our filters of living 32 inches above the ground at 72 degrees and never hungry and always fed and never cold and always sheltered, we have a really low view of scripture at that point when we see through that lens. So seeing through the eyes of the ancients, I believe, is really important to have a great respect. So I have a very high view of scripture. And that's something that, that people have questioned me on because I do have these questions about Exodus and, and some of the stories of the Old Testament and the context of the New Testament and such, where I question a lot of things. Why? Because I have a very high view of scripture. I want to see through the eyes of the ancients versus through the eyes and the filter of my my modern life to be able to apply that scripture correctly to, to my context. Well, let's get into the book because that's what this, this week is all about is getting into the story. Um, I'm going to take the, the first part of this, just introducing what Exodus is. And then we're just going to explore some more topics. I'm really excited. Um, to do this format again. Um, when we go back to in-person and live, I, I, I might miss this. We might have to continue this in some different time and different day. I mean, even if it's just the three of us. So we all get fancy chairs. <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah. With good backgrounds. Yeah. Maybe we'll, we'll buy those slides that go in the background. So, okay. So the book of Exodus, um, is the second book listed as the second book, Genesis and Exodus, second book of the Bible. And Exodus tells, as we learned in that first part of that video, tells the story of the Israelite people, their encounters with God and their deliverance from oppression and their salvation into the promised land. So those are the, those are the themes of, of the big idea not the big ideas, but the big blocks of Exodus is, is we see that this story is about God and these people and God's interaction with these people, but also God delivers. God is a delivering God. So, so it answers within the story. It answers, why does God deliver? It answers in a sense, how God delivers. And we're going to explore that today. So the story is written in exile. It's penned down or or put down in exile. And so there's a lot of history from the, the events, the proposed events, and, and when the story maybe was first orally told all the way to exile, there's a lot of history. So there is some nuances that I believe within the, within the writing and within the Hebrew, the actual language of Hebrew that influences the story, the language, the nuances, it all sh was shaped by writers because we know that God and humans wrote and penned this Bible. And so I, I think it's like a co collab where we, we, God is, you know, telling the story and, and humans are writing the story. 
where we see this now, we see this uh, emergence of, of the Bible or this story of Exodus with a lot of human influence in it. So just the mere fact that we have the word, um, I think Shrey, you brought this up in our prelim work that, that the word priest, or maybe that was Jake, you know, just saying mm-hmm. that there's the actual language of priest in Exodus. And there wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't have been any structure if the, if the story was the story as it's told, um, there wouldn't have been a structure of, of priesthood. To take one step yeah. back, Kevin, um, yeah. when you say that it was penned in exile, do you yeah. want to, do you want to go ahead? Jump? Go ahead. You're better at that. <laughs> um, so when you had the events that happened, and let's place those somewhere before 1400 BCE. And then you have the exile, which happens anywhere from 720 to 410 ish, 360 yeah. max. And yeah. so you have a good 1100 years in between the events versus being put together into a story. And so we talked earlier about scripture being being like different colors of Plato and those pieces being mashed together. So sometimes they come out all with the same color. And sometimes you can still see those individual colors within that glob of Plato itself. And so think of scripture as that you can see those individual pieces of color within that as we have this conversation forward. And that's a great respect of scripture because honestly, scripture uh, to preserve a, a story like the, like the song of Moses, you know, that's like a super old Hebrew, a super old song, a writing, a poem, I mean, that is a, that just shows how old um, this story is and how preserved this story is. And I think that, that really to have a respect for scripture, looking at that, I guess the Plato example, where the story of, or the song of Moses in Exodus is like, you know, a glob of, of blue that's sitting there that's different than the rest of the Plato. I mean, you have this glob of blue that you're like, wow, that is, that is incredible that that is so old. I mean, is that, Shrey, is that the oldest scripture? Is I, that the I oldest so. known Hebrew? Yeah, I mean, I think it's like the oldest known Hebrew we have is the Song of Moses. And so that's like that, it stands out really bright compared to, I think the rest of the, the story. So is it historically plausible? I wouldn't use this, you know, historically plausible language. It's theologically plausible. The story in and of itself is a narrative. It's a story that I believe that we need to look beyond the historical retelling um, of it. And we need to look for these, you know, brightly colored, wow, that is an incredible piece of our, of our Christian um, story that we cannot just gloss over as 
oh, that's not important. That is very important, like the Song of Moses or just the Hebrew of the language of the time or the exile, what actually happened. We're saying it's important, but it's not to be, it was the purpose was never, and it's not to be used as a history textbook. Yeah. And we can't use the Bible as a weapon of mass destruction. And I think the weapon of mass destruction, uh, the Bible has been used as a weapon of mass destruction. And we need to be very careful about how we use the Bible and have a great respect for the Bible. So in order to understand the Bible, we need to stand under. And so always submitting ourselves to scripture and, and really looking at scripture for what scripture is. So the controversy of Exodus, there's more controversy that we haven't brought up at all. I mean, we have these other controversies, but just the fact that this, that this story, God allows his people to be in slavery and we see massive violence um, just the waters coming, you know, over the Egyptian army, and that's killing. <laughs> so we see the the God that kills. That I mean, the God that allows slavery. The God that's, in a sense, overreactive. I mean, goodness, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, let my people go. So I'm going to send boils and flies and and death. insects and what and death. You know, I mean, that's. It's pretty reactive. So the very nature of God, of this loving grace, forgiveness, creation, God, uh, then we have this other, like, what happened to God? I mean, we're just like reactive and violent. So there's there's other controversies within Exodus that, that we're going to explore through this series that we need to to keep in mind. And so I hope that we can not just get so stuck on the historical ideas, but that we can actually move into some of the narrative, some of the theological plausibility of this story. So let's spend some time talking about uh, this. In our prelim work, we, we talked about um, some of the Netflix shows that are out there. And of course, those of you who are addicted or stuck on some Netflix show right now, you'll understand um, some of the material, some of the shows that are out there. It's really popular right now uh, to have, and it's been popular for a very long time. And we brought up in our prelim work, we, we brought up like the, the story of MASH back in the, what, the 80s or whatever that show was. Um, we talked about MASH or- We didn't bring that up, so. I brought that up. Yeah, sorry. They're like, what, sto- what show is that? Oh, I know, um, Ash. Bewitched, right? Bewitched. I don't know if you remember the story Bewitched. Back when I was a kid, we had these older stories. And the story of, in and of itself has remained the same. You have this character. You have this main person. And so you think about um, the Green Arrow or you, you know, how to get away with murder that that series you have this person this main character that is entrenched with 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 problems and hang-ups and they have massive habits and they tap into a sickness or they tap into a sin or they just identify we identify with this main character really really well maybe too well we identify how to get away with murder. We we identify with this person 
uh, too well. And we get addicted to this character. And then there's this supporting character roles all around the main character that uh, either codependently co-signs their garbage or they codependently try to help this person too much or they, they, they don't help them, right? They work against them or whatever. There's this community of people around the main character that is the supporting roles. That storyline or that idea is super old and it's, it's not new. And we're gonna talk about the hero's journey right now. We have a concept called the hero's journey that I think is important. And so, so let's walk through this, that Moses is this character, this, this lead character that's slow of speech, whatever that means, right? He has to face Pharaoh. And I don't know if you've ever had a difficult, threatening conversation. I have where I've had to walk into a situation where I'm really scared to have the conversation. They try to get away with murder. And and I have the conversation and it didn't result in in my expected results. My, My expectations weren't met in the conversation. And so then I have to like, rethink the conversation then I have to go back I don't know if you've ever experienced that but I've experienced that lots in ministry where I have to have difficult um, conversations is this person going to react on me and and what is going to happen so that that main character Moses has some issues and challenges and he you know goes against God and some you know striking the rock and all this kind of stuff that he does that uh, that we identify with we identify with Moses. Uh, and then all of a sudden it turns to the Israelite people become the hero, the Israelite community. You know, Moses dies, and then we have this community of people with Joshua. They they are led into the promised land. It's like the hero's redemption. So why don't we just take that for a little bit, show that slide and and uh, talk about the hero's journey. I think we see this happen a number of times um, over the book of Exodus. I think we see Moses take several heroes journeys. Um, But like, so we start with the call to adventure um, and Moses gets taken out of his comfort zone. Um, He kills somebody um, that will certainly send you out of your comfort zone. Um, Crosses into the unknown. and I think here um, where it talks about the helper, we could see uh, the burning bush incident here. Um, Moses meets God. That's got to be disorienting. Mm-hmm. Um, Moses comes through that. He um, is told by God to go to Pharaoh, tell Pharaoh to let the Israelite people go. Um, Moses doesn't want to do it. And God's like, all right, I'll send you your brother. He can help. And so they go to Pharaoh and are like, let the Israelites go. And Pharaoh says, no, I'm not going to do that. And Moses comes away completely devastated. Wait a second, God, you told me that I was supposed to go talk to Pharaoh and it didn't work. And I think, I think this is the abyss. This is Moses's first death and rebirth. Um, And then Moses comes back out of that abyss confronts Pharaoh again. Um, We see the plagues and then eventually the Israelite people are brought out of Egypt. And so I think that's one cycle of the hero's journey that we see in the book of Exodus. I think uh, the the story of the hero's journey 
I would I would go so far to say that every every important narrative that we have in history is is the hero's journey, and the oldest text that we have, not in not in com, like complete, but the story of Gilgamesh, is this first example that we have written down, not orally, but written down that we have that the hero is a flawed hero, goes through goes through these liminal experiences, we'll call them, to change and be different, go through hurts and goes through, go through different um, obstacles and then comes out uh, still flawed, still recognizable, but almost deified in the in the position that they have. So they, they become almost this, this godlike figure. Um, and we see that with Gilgamesh. We see that with, uh, in the epic of, of Odyssey, the Odyssey and the Iliad in all of these old texts that we have from the very beginning, the oldest ones, that Achilles' heel, like every hero has an Achilles heel. that's really interesting we have some comments that frodo sam and the ring yeah. are great examples of hero's journey thanks rob for that and then johnny lawrence is on the hero's journey <laughs> is ted lasso on the hero's journey too i'm not sure <laughs> who is johnny lawrence i'm i'm confused cobra kai yeah oh thank you yeah <laughs> those are some very modern ideas gilgamesh and johnny lawrence <laughs> <laughs> They're on the hero's journey. Well, I, th I think it's really important to talk about this concept because honestly, this, the book of, I the book of Exodus is my favorite book of the Bible. I mean, I've watched every version of Hollywood's book of Exodus. Uh, I've, I've studied the book of Exodus for a very long time. And I, I love, I love, love, love the book of Exodus. I think it's just such an important, important story to know and to embody and to really think through and know the concepts and the, and what the scripture is actually trying to say. It is, it is the narrative in and of itself is just so sacred and such the word of God, because it speaks in a manner that speaks to all of us. It speaks to every situation. It seems that we can get ourselves into and how God is always at play. God is always interacting with God's people. The divine is always present in our, in our lives, in our journey, as we move from you know, our own oppressive states to our own wildernesses, to our own uh, our rebellion, grumbling and complaining. Uh, God is always, always present. The divine is always with us. And so I really think that this, this story um, is really important and, and crucial. So when was this written? Jake brought up a little bit about when this was written. And I think just really quick, First um, Kings 6.1 talks about uh, Solomon, the building of Solomon's temple. And that was 
this this number 480 years after exodus and i really think it's important at this point just really quick to talk about the numbering system in the bible 480 years is is that places the exodus at 1446 the problem with that literal interpretation of 480 is the hebrew does not match 1446 so that's a problem uh, the history when, of itself, when you say the Hebrew doesn't match um, the, the, the style of Hebrew, I'm sorry, the style of the language doesn't match. It's like it would Elizabethan, be like Elizabethan right. English versus versus, versus modern Elizabeth. English. Yeah, it would be the same. Like we're talking in these and thous, but then that doesn't even match. You know, like like yo. the the language. Yeah, yo and what up, yo. It doesn't match the, the language, and so we have this. 480 years. And that's, that's a challenge. I would place the book of Exodus more in the mid 1200s where the language matches the mid 1200s, the nuances of it. But, but just really quick, that 480, that in and of it, like it's similar to Moses um, and him in the Exodus at 80 years old. So Moses is 80 at, at the Exodus in Exodus 7, 7. And he dies at 120 years. And he, uh, oh, he's somewhere else at 40 years old, 40. That's when he um, kills the Egyptian and goes right. into Midian. Yes. Yeah, so he's 40 years old in Midian. He's 80 years old at Exodus. He's 120 years old at, uh, at death. So, so that's just really convenient. Right. It's very, very convenient that 40, 80, 120. So when you see those numbers in scripture, 40 years of wilderness, 40 days in uh, in the desert, Jesus, 40 years in wilderness, Israelites, Moses was 40, 80, 120. Whenever you see those, that is and 400 and uh, 480 years right 480 years uh that's 12 times 40 so that's really convenient it's kind of like lamech in in the old testament in genesis being 777 years old that means a perfect amount of time so after solomon's temple is a really important build 480 years after a perfect amount of time solomon's temple was built in a perfect amount of time, Moses did this. In a perfect amount of time, Moses did this. In a completed life, 120 years, Moses dies. So whenever you see those numbers in scripture, like the, like did people actually live 900 years? And so, uh, so that 900 years actually is a factor of a number. And so the old numbering system is a Mesopotamian numbering system that showed status, it showed levels of wealth, it showed levels of uh, patriarchy, um, it, can, it showed a lot of things. So, so just, to, just to spend just a moment on that, that the numbering is really important to pay attention to because it means something greater than, than just face value, 40 years, 80 years, 120 years. So what we're going to do now is we're going to take just a quick six minutes and we're going to watch the next bible project video and that bible project video is going to set us up for just the remaining of our conversation and then 
so just take this moment to watch this ad. I'm going to put it up for us. And we hope you like this second video because this is the part of Exodus that we just don't ever get to that second half. We always end at the splitting of the water and the Israelites are saved and yay, we, we end up on the other side. Um, and then there's a lot more to the story. So let's watch that now. The book of Exodus. In the first video, we explored chapters 1 through 18, which tell the foundational story of how God rescued the enslaved Israelites by confronting and defeating Pharaoh, while offering a way of escape through the blood of the Passover lamb. God then delivered his people by bringing them through the waters of the sea and then into the wilderness, where, surprisingly, they grumbled and complained. Now, the second half of the book of Exodus opens as Moses leads Israel to the foot of Mount Sinai, where God invites the nation of Israel to enter into a covenant relationship. And here we reach another key moment in the biblical storyline, because this is picking up and developing God's promise to Abraham. So remember, from the book of Genesis, God promised that through Abraham's family, somehow he would restore his blessing to all of the nations. And here we find out more. God says that if Israel obeys the terms of the covenant. They will be so shaped by God's laws and teaching and justice that they will become a kingdom of priests, which means that they will become God's representatives and show all of the other nations what God is truly like. Now, the people of Israel eagerly accept the offer, and so God's presence appears right on the top of Mount Sinai in the form of cloud and lightning and thunder. And Moses goes up as their representative, and God opens with the basic terms of the covenant, the famous Ten Commandments. These are like the basic terms of the agreement, how the Israelites and God are going to relate to each other. And then after this come another collection of commands which fill out the first ten in more detail. There are laws about Israel's worship, about social justice, how they are to live together, all shaping Israel into a nation of justice and generosity that's different from the other nations. So Moses writes down all of these laws and he brings them down to the people who again eagerly agree to enter into this covenant with God. And once they do so, God takes the relationship forward another step. He tells Moses Moses that he wants his holy and divine and good presence to come and dwell right in the midst of Israel, which develops another aspect of God's covenant promises. So remember, after humanity's rebellion in the garden, it was access to God's presence that was lost. But now it's through the family of Abraham that God's presence is becoming once again accessible through this covenant relationship, and first with Israel, and then somehow one day to all nations. So what follows are seven chapters of detailed architectural blueprints about this sacred tent called the tabernacle. There's an outer courtyard with an altar, and then in the center there's a tent that has an outer room and then an inner room. And then inside the inner room, which is called the most holy space, is a golden box called the Ark of the Covenant. And there's angelic creatures over the top of it. It's the hot spot of God's presence. Now there's lots of detail in these chapters, and it's important to know that every piece has some kind of symbolic value. All of the flowers, the angels, the gold and the jewels, it all echoes back to the Garden of Eden, the place where God and humans live together in intimacy. And so the tabernacle is like a portable Eden, so to speak. It's the place where God and Israel can live together in peace. 
at least in theory, because right here, something goes really, really wrong. Israel breaks the covenant. As Moses is up on the mountain receiving the blueprints for the tabernacle, down below at the camp, the Israelites, they're losing patience. And so they ask Moses' brother Aaron to make for them a golden calf idol so they can worship it as the God who saved them out of slavery in Egypt. Now God's presence, it's right there on top of the mountain. They can see it. But here they are below, breaking the first two commands of the covenant they just agreed to. No other gods and no idols. Now what follows is really important. God knows what's happening down below. And so he first invites Moses into his own anger and pain. And he tells Moses what he wants to do, just to wipe Israel out. But Moses intercedes by appealing to God's character. He says, first of all, destroying Israel would be going back on your covenant promises to Abraham. And then Moses appeals to God's reputation among the nations. What would they think if they see you destroying your own people? And so God accepts Moses' intercession and he relents. And while he does bring his judgment on those who instigated the idolatry, he forgives the nation as a whole and promises to renew his covenant. And it's right here at this point in the story that God, for the first time, describes his own character to Moses. He says, the Lord is merciful. He's gracious. He's slow to anger, abounding in covenant faithfulness. He forgives sin, but he will not leave the wicked unpunished. So we have this tension. God is full of mercy, but also he must deal with evil if he claims to be good. And above all, God is faithful to his promises, even though it means he knows he's committing himself to a people who are utterly faithless. And so after renewing the covenant with Israel, God commissions Moses to go ahead and build the tabernacle. And once again, we get five long chapters describing in detail the construction of the tabernacle. And it all comes together in the final chapter where the tabernacle's finished. God's glorious divine presence comes and hovers over the tent and our hopes are high. And so Moses, he goes right up to enter into the tent and he can't. He actually can't go in and that's how the book ends. It's really surprising, but not really if you think about it. You can see now how much Israel's sin has damaged the relationship with God in more ways than we realized. So the book opened, remember, with Pharaoh's evil threatening Israel and threatening God's covenant promise. But now, as the book ends, Israel has become its own worst enemy. It's their sin that's threatening the future of the covenant. And so the question as the book closes is how is God going to reconcile this conflict between his holiness and his goodness and his presence with the sinful corruption of his own covenant people? The solution to that problem is what the next book is about. But for now, that's the book of Exodus. So we're going to talk about some big ideas of Exodus and spend most of our time on one of those big ideas the first big idea, and I love those Bible project videos because they just summarize the, the story, the narrative really well. And so you have now heard the entire book of Exodus summarized, and I hope that maybe you can go back and, and review those and review our talk today uh, just to get some more nuggets out of those. So the first big idea of Exodus is that God and God alone, Yahweh, so Yahweh and Yahweh alone is worthy of worship, is the worth of worship, that God and God alone is worthy of worship. So remember um, some of the Old Testament 
thoughts about the gods where you had, you know, this God on, uh, you know, of, of something we, we have, we have this polytheist maybe idea and it would probably be really easy to be a polytheist back then because, you know, you had the sun staring at you, the moon staring at you and the earth staring at you. And so attributing different gods, different ideas or different thoughts would have been uh, pretty easy to do. But this Yahweh and Yahweh alone is worthy of worship is a main theme. So Shrey, I want you to read for us because, because the Psalms definitely talk through Exodus. They, they, they refer back to Exodus. So we have Psalm 77. Uh, what does that say for us there? Yeah, Psalm 77, 11 through 20. But I will remember the Lord's deeds. Yes, I will remember your wondrous acts from times long past. I will meditate on all your works. I will ponder your deeds. God, your way is holiness. Who is as great a God as you, God? You are the God who works wonders. You have demonstrated your strength among all people. With your mighty arm, you redeemed your people, redeemed the children of Jacob and Joseph. The waters saw you, God. The waters saw you and reeled. Even the deep depths shook. The clouds poured water. The skies cracked thunder. Your arrows were flying all around. The crash of your thunder was in the swirling storm. Lightning lit up the whole world. The earth shook and quaked. Your way went straight through the sea. Your pathways went right through the mighty waters, but your footprints left no trace. You led your people like sheep under the care of Moses and Aaron. So when I think about that scripture, I think God and God alone is the one who redeems. See, this is the challenge that, that other gods had with Yahweh, right? And these other perceived gods where the other perceived gods in history have always been about conquer, power, conquest. Um, we have victory through death, things like that. And now we have this God who redeems. And so Yahweh, no other God basically can claim rescue. No other God can claim redemption or, or, or rescue. And then this narrative from Israel, from Egypt, uh, Israel from Egypt. No other God can claim Israel from Egypt, their rescue. And so Yahweh and Yahweh alone is worthy of worship. How about Psalm 107? Psalm 107 is another one of those scriptures. Mm -hmm. uh, this is verses 28 through 32. So they cried out to the Lord in their distress, and God brought them out safe from their desperate circumstances. God quieted the storm to a whisper. The sea's waves were hushed. So they rejoiced because the, the waves had calmed down. Then God led them to the harbor they were hoping for. Let them thank the Lord for his faithful love and his wondrous works for all people. Let them exalt God in the congregation of the people and praise God in the assembly of the elders. So we have this idea then now um, of, of redemption, of rescue, of leading out, of being present with Israel in their time of distress. So that sounds a lot like salvation and the idea of that we term salvation. So, so God is the one that saves and God is the one that redeems. So again, the first big idea of Exodus is Yahweh and Yahweh alone is worthy of worship. 
is worthy of Israel's worship because God is the one who saves. And so let's look at some ideas of salvation because we, we in our Jesus-centric thinking, if I could say it that way, <clears throat> we see salvation really in just one way. Jesus on the cross, uh, forgiveness of sins. And there's not really a, for us, there's not really a physical telling of salvation. We weren't wandering in, you know, the desert of Eastern Oregon. And all of a sudden we come to the promised land of, you know, Portland Metro. You know, we don't, we don't have that physical narrative of, of redemption or salvation in, in our lives. It's more of a heart. It's more of a emotion. It's more of an internal um, idea. But for Israel, it's much more of an much more than an internal idea. It's a it's an external reality for them. So an external um, idea. So the external ideas of salvation. One external idea is the idea of recreation, where we see uh, that to save is to recreate. To save is to recreate. And one of the physical representations of salvation in recreation is the splitting of water. And we see the splitting of water all through scripture, all through the Old Testament and in the New Testament, that we see the splitting of water as the sign of salvation in recreation. So we have this, this story of creation in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 where the very beginning of the Hebrew poem that we see the story of creation, where God is interacting with, with people in the very beginning. And then humankind messes that up. So the, the characters of Adam and Eve, they rebel or they go against God's wishes and take the, the fruit of the, of the, the knowledge. And so they are fruit of the tree of knowledge. And so they, they take that. Um, against God's will. And then we see this idea of the fall of humankind. But we have a garden scene. We have, we have then a redemption scene uh, within the garden scene. And that is the covering of their shame, which is represented by their nakedness. So they've sinned. So we see the covering of their shame that God gave them animal skins. There's a sacrifice made within that created scene, creation scene, and that God shows up. But every time we have the, the redemption or salvation or forgiveness of God, there's a representation of the spirit with, within that, that moment. The spirit shows up within that moment. So Jake has Genesis 1. So, so go ahead and talk about it. I have the chaos or I have God walking. Uh, both. <laughs> in, thanks. In the, yeah. uh, the very beginning, the spirit of God hovered over, over the deep or over the chaos. And then in Genesis three, again, right before God covers, covers the, basically the shame of humanity 
God was seen walking in the garden. And so before a, before a salvation event from chaos to order, from chaos to order, the, the, the God shows up like Kevin was saying. So Genesis 3, 8 and Genesis 1, 1, 2. Yeah. So God is present and, and brings order to the chaos through God's presence. And so this is a really important concept because again, in uh, Genesis eight, where we see uh, uh, Noah and the ark. So now, now in Genesis one, the land, um, the water was separated by the land. So that's the sign of salvation where the, where it's separated, the, the land is, the water is separated by the land. So we have God hovering over the chaos, this idea of splitting of water. And then we see the presence of God or the presence of the spirit in the midst of bringing then order from the chaos. So now in Noah's story, we see this uh, idea where the earth is covered with water. And now we're waiting for the water again to separate. So the water or the covering of water is the chaos. And then we see the separation of water, which is salvation. And then he waited in, in eight, Genesis 8.10, he waited seven more days, a perfect amount of time. Remember the seven is that idea of perfect or the idea of a, of a complete amount of time. He waited seven more days. Seems very convenient as a seven. And again, sent out the dove from the ark. When the dove returned to him in the evening, there in its beak was a freshly plucked olive leaf. Freshly plucked olive leaf. So now this dove is representative of, of God's spirit. But it's really important to take this farther because Jesus, in Jesus's uh, life on earth, he's baptized and a dove comes um, in that moment. And Yeshua or Joshua or Jesus, right, is, is, is a Nazarene. And so Jesus or Yeshua, that name means God's twig. So Yeshua means God's twig. And in the Bible, it says in Matthew 2.23 that this Yeshua would be called a Nazarene, right? According to the prophets, this Yeshua was a Nazarene. And so the word Nazarene, Netzer, this idea of Netzer is the olive shoot. So the at Nazarene is the olive shoot. So the, so the dove is the representation of the Holy Spirit in Jesus's baptism. And Jesus is the olive shoot or the netzer, God's twig. So this, this Noah story then is full circle. Uh, for me, it's full circle where I see that this dove, we see the splitting of water, salvation, God's presence, freshly plucked olive, olive leaf. All right. So now let's go into then Joshua three and four. Shreya, why don't you take that one, Joshua 3 and 4. Yeah, this is when um, Joshua is leading the Israelites into the promised land. Um, and mm -hmm. 
what happens is they start with the Ark of the Covenant, which is representative of the spirit of God. This is where God lives. Um, so priests carry the Ark of the Covenant into the River Jordan and the water splits. They walk across on dry land. Um, so again, we have this example of salvation where the waters are splitting. We have the presence of God um, in the Ark of the Covenant, and it is a recreation in that the Israelites are now home. They're in the promised land. It's like a new beginning. Awesome. So then we advance forward, and now we see in 2 Kings 2, and this is an important story. Jake, you want to take this one with Elijah? Elijah is on a mountain and was fighting against the uh, prophets of Baal. And what happened was they were trying to figure out, is God greater than Baal, the, the God uh, signified by a calf? And so if you, if you read that into the, uh, the narrative as well, that might be important. But they, they took, they prayed, they prostrated themselves, the prophets of Baal, and they tried to bring fire down from heaven to light this altar on fire. And Elisha goes and it's like, well, obviously it didn't work. And so I'm going to put water on my altar. So they dump, I forget how many gallons and gallons of water onto this altar. And they dug a trench so that this altar was moated by water and a bowl full of water. And Elijah prayed to God and down, down came fire from heaven and lit the water on fire. Okay, so now we see then the fire from heaven then splits basically as a metaphorical splitting of water where we see that this altar is covered in water and then fire still happens from, from heaven. So water, fire, spirit, presence of God, Yahweh and Yahweh alone is worthy of worship. Sherry, I want you to take Second Kings 2 specifically in those mm -hmm those instances um, of that story. Yeah, this is near the end of Elijah's life. Um, and he's got his young mentee, Elisha, with him. Um, and they're walking out to the wilderness. Um, and at one point, they come to a stream or a river. And Elijah throws down his cloak. And they walk across on dry land. So again, we have this splitting of the water, salvation. Um, Elijah asks Elisha what he wants from him. And Elisha's response is, I want a double portion of your spirit. And Elijah gives him his cloak as a representation of this gift, this uh, double portion of the spirit. And then Elijah is taken away up to heaven in a chariot of fire. Uh, so again, we have the presence of the spirit. Right. Chariot of fire. <clears throat> not the song, but the song <laughs> and uh, the presence of the spirit, the double portion of the spirit. So again, we see God's presence. So the splitting of water is salvation. And then God's presence advancing forward again, Jesus in his baptism, being baptized, splitting of water and baptism. And then we see, then the presence of the dove, the spirit in Acts 2, 
uh, 42, it says, be baptized in the name of Jesus, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so the splitting of water and then the metaphor of baptism, the picture of baptism is then uh, death and resurrection, being buried in water, being raised up out of water, and then the presence of the spirit. So that is a huge idea in the book of Exodus. To save is to recreate. And I think that the camp on that, as long as we did, is important because salvation in recreation, that is the theme of our own salvation, where we are once fallen, we are once, you know, not, uh, you know, not uh, declared holy and righteous. And now we are new creations. We are this new created person. That's the theme of the Old Testament in our own salvation, that Jesus, then in our splitting of water, our baptism, that we are then created in a new way. So this story continues. There, there, it's this, this never-ending story of, of Exodus all the way to today. It just never ends that we are recreated every day through the spirit of God and God's presence in our lives. This is the theological plausibility of the story. This is where God, this is about God and me. And I think that that's important um, just to spend really some time meditating on that, that idea. So Jake, take that, take that idea of Exodus 32 and Acts 2. Let's just spend a little time on that um, before we get to our conclusions. But uh, Exodus, but Exodus 32. Yeah. 34. I'm sorry, 32, Yeah. We're one of the themes of what two more themes of the, or three more themes of, of the book of Exodus is first theme is Yahweh. Yahweh alone is worthy of worship. Second is to save is to recreate. Third is you have this Mount Sinai scene and the law is given. These, these commands are given and the commands, uh, there's a lot of commands. So don't touch dead bodies and put your fingers in your mouth. That was my 10 commandments uh, theme. Don't touch the dead bodies and put your fingers in your mouth. So there's all these weird commands. There's strange commands, but commands were really important to the Israelite people. And they were important to God. We might not understand them today. We might not understand the importance of them, but, but they certainly did. So Exodus 34 and, and Acts 2, take that and explicate that for us. Um, give me a moment. So in Exodus 34, six through seven is what theologians call the, the proto-credo of God or where, where God identifies God's self first. Um, and so what it reads is this, that the God passed in front of him being Moses and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God in, in the original writing, it's the Lord, the Lord, a Lord who is compassionate and merciful. So three times we talked about numerical meaning rather than um, linear numerical meaning. And so the Hebrew people had a different method. So those, that three times mean the, the most high Lord, the most high God. A God who is compassionate and merciful 
very patient, full of great loyalty and faithfulness, showing great loyalty to a thousand generations, forgiving every kind of sin and rebellion, yet by no means clearing the guilty, punishing their parents' sins on their children and their grandchildren, as well as the third and fourth generation. And so when you read this passage, there's some confusion that, that God is in this odd balance of, of being super compassionate, but then visiting the sins, um, punishing children for their parents, their generational sin. And so what you're supposed to do with this text is put it on a scale and it's called an, an adjectival formula. So how many times God proclaims God's self as loving versus how many times God puts God's self as, as in the justice camp. And so the, the, the loving compassion, grace always outweighs, outweighs the judgment. And so God is character is always pointing towards mercy, towards grace with the ability to hold things into balance and justice. I think we often say that God is, is balancing these things or God is both, but the, the scale is so tipped as seen in the Exodus story over and over again through this recreation that justice always takes a second seat to compassion. So our theology of grace needs to be greater than our theology of sin. So much so that that sin might just be washed away. So we see this in the completion of the two Pentecosts, where the first Pentecost in Exodus uh, so I'm 30. I'm trying to find exactly where it's at. So for, I, it's not in Exodus 34, but in 32, Exodus 32, I think. Maybe you could where the 3000 die. So, so basically the story is Moses goes up on this mountain and when he comes back from the mountain and that's really important because this mountain wasn't that big and neither is the temple Mount of Solomon's temple. It's really kind of short mountains showing that God is, you know, doesn't need a high mountain to be high. (laughs) So, so Moses goes up on this mountain, comes down from the mountain and sees what the Israelite people are doing is they're building a golden calf and the golden calf would have made sense because Ra was the, the Egyptian God represented in a, in a cow and a calf. And so they would have known, they probably would have thought, well, this is what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to build this calf and the golden calf. And so that would have made complete sense to them. Uh, Moses comes down and said, wait a minute, Yahweh is alone worthy of worship. And, and up on that mountain, the presence of God shows up where Moses gets stuck in the cleft of the rock and God passes by, his spirit passes by. And we see that presence of the spirit and then 3,000 men are killed that day. Um, when he came and down and he yeah. and God is seen as our right. The spirit is visited upon the people and passes in front of them. And then right. in, in Acts 2, you get the believers are up in a high room. Peter comes down and thung, tongues of fire are upon them. 
and he preaches and 4,000 are saved. 3,000. 3,000 are saved that day. So it's it's the exact mirror image of of these two Pentecosts. Right. And another symbolic number, a perfect amount. Yes. Yeah, totally. Yeah, we have this symbolic, you know, it's not 3,186. It's 3,000, 3,000. 3,000 die, 3,000 are saved. So it's, it's the completion of or the fulfillment of all the law and the prophets we see in the second uh, Pentecost. Awesome. So Israel complains and rebels just like the rest of us. And this cycle, this, this idea, these ideas, remember that Yahweh, Yahweh alone is worthy of worship. To save is to recreate God doesn't need a high mountain to be high. God gives a lot of commands. We get that. And we don't like commands. So we're going to complain and grumble too. <laughs> so those themes of the Old Testament or this book of Exodus definitely is the story that never ends um, in, our, in our lives. It's a story that never ends. So let's conclude this because we have to, uh, for time's sake, and uh, unfortunately, I'd like to just go on forever and probably the three of us could go on forever and we'd lose all of our listeners. But, uh, but let's, let's conclude this. Let's get some application out on the table. And so I'm going to ask Shrey and Jake just to spend some time just to, to conclude us and then we'll um, move into communion. Yeah, right. well, I want to talk about... Um... To save is to recreate. I think we both are. Um, that's okay. It's our big, big theme. Um, so I, I consider Exodus to be an identity forming story because it was written in the exile when Israel has lost so much of who they were and were trying to find themselves again. Um, and they have these stories from their past coming together to remind them this is who you are. Um, and we see constantly um, throughout all of the commands, be this way because you were once slaves in Egypt. Um, And I think this is an invitation to be compassionate to other people, to have empathy, to understand, you know, we've, we've been through a lot. We understand what it's like. We're going to be kind in our response to you because you've been through a lot too. Um, But I think it's also, um, a challenge to not be an oppressor. You were slaves in Egypt, you know what it's like. So don't seek power for power's sake. Choose humility. Um, And I think that's a big challenge for us as well. Um, As Christians, I think we like to be in positions of power and authority because we think it's the moral choice. And it doesn't always work out that way. It's a challenge to us to have humility and not necessarily seek power. It's hard to do. Our human condition drives us to leadership. We have to be in the front seat. Yeah. Yep. Driving the bus. Yeah. Jake, why don't you lead us into some conclusions and then lead us into community? Yeah. My, my biggest takeaway over the over Exodus 
And, and I would pose as probably the most important passage in scripture is Exodus 34, six through seven, where God reveals God's self. And so I've already talked a little bit about it. And so I won't go too into it. The, what does it say again? The Lord, the Lord, a God is compassion, merciful, very patient, full, great loyalty and faithfulness, showing great loyalty to a thousand generations, forgiving every kind of sin and rebellion, yet by no means clearing the guilty, punishing their parents' sins for their children's and grandchildren's, as well as the third and fourth generation. And so as, as believers, as Christians, our job is to show loyalty, compassion, be merciful and patient, always be faithful, always show loyalty, no matter what, having steadfast kindness or ever everlasting love that we, that we give to freely to those around us, even when they, they wrong us. And so that's, I think also the story of Exodus that even though you were wronged, even though you came out of slavery, don't turn your heart, your heart to be hard, but to have compassion, have loyalty and have justice. A question that we have from Rob is, did the authors of Exodus know about Jesus being the final solution? Um, quickly to address it, I, I would not say that the authors of Exodus had Jesus as a person in mind, but they had the story of recreation and redemption over and over and over again that, that God is going to continue to show up and to offer salvation to those who put their faith in in god um and I probably would potentially write, had the messiah in mind they probably had the messiah since they were in exile if we put them in there um i probably wouldn't put final solution next to jesus uh but that's a different subject the uh the the idea is always that god is going to redeem God's people no matter what. And so Jesus was that, that conclusion of that story that we as, as not Israelites, most of us, not, not Jewish, can, can partake in. Which leads us to communion, why not? The, the story of communion is, is that new covenant that that you have the Mosaic covenant of the Ten Commandments and you have the new covenant of Jesus and the symbol of the new covenant is communion. It's a, it's a meal and a celebration together. The Mosaic covenant that is a, is a symbolized by, by commandments, by rules and regulations and Jesus is breaking down rules and partying. And so on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and the juice as a symbol of everlasting love, kindness, compassion, and grace that we all can be recreated no matter who or where we are. So take and eat. We do say thanks be to God. And I thought I would end as a benediction, the, the Moses and Aaron benediction in number 6, 24 through 26. It reads, the Lord bless you and keep you. The, more, the Lord make the Lord's face shine on you 
and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up the Lord's face to you and grant you peace. Thanks you two for joining in this discussion. I really appreciate the time. It's always uh, kind of nerve wracking getting into this and wondering if we're prepared enough or have enough material, but here we are on the other side. <laughs> and so I'm really grateful for your thoughts and, and for, your, uh, for your input because they are valuable and important. Um, next week, we're talking about Exodus 1. Uh, through 225-ish, Moses, talking about Moses, the man, the legend, the um, Hebrew with a Greek, or with an Egyptian, not Greek, <laughs> the Hebrew with a Egyptian name. So we're going to talk through uh, the very beginning couple of chapters of the book of, of Exodus. All right, thanks everyone for listening today. Really appreciate the time together. And next week, we... Um, Hope to meet in person. If something uh, comes up, we will let everybody know uh, via our social media channels, uh, any changes that we are making to the gathering um, at 10 o'clock on Sunday in person. So uh, with all fingers crossed and hope and luck and, and God on our side, we'll be together uh, next, next week uh, in, our, in our gathering uh, at the church building. Have a great week, everyone. God bless you. And thank you for joining us today. Take care, everybody.